afternoon, Internet Killed the Michelin Star, which I was going to sing, but I didn't. And I, should play, I shouldn't play favorites, but it is my favorite title of the presentation today. Totally take offense. I'm sorry. They're all great. It's just, you know. Um, uh, uh, with uh, Vicki Dillon presenting. So let's give a big hand to Vicki. on social media. And when I talk about the food text, I mean like a, an image, a recipe, a blog. It sort of is like my catch-all term for media that's created to talk about food. My pointer is There we go. So what is the future of society and food? A lot of times we think about the sustainability, the nutrition, the economics and access points that come into the, the debate when talking about food today. And these are very, very important parts of food culture and they need to be addressed. However, if we want any of the interventions that companies and industries and people are creating to catch on, we need to think about what are their barriers of adoption and more broadly than price point and supply chain, like how will this actually become something that people will use? Um, and so that is kind of a, a piece of the puzzle that innovation companies typically don't think about. They just think about, this can save world hunger, but they don't think about how do I actually get people to eat it <laughs> and want to eat it. Um, so with that in mind, I originally had started my, my research by thinking about this idea of why are people afraid of, of new technological foods, for example, like cricket powders, which isn't really that new, but in terms of like a Western market, it's a new thing that people are thinking of. Um, and so I spoke with Mark Post, who's a scientist in the Netherlands, and he was the founder of lab-grown meat, or in vitro meat. I don't know if you've seen the Petri dishes with the burger inside. He's the one who, who started that. So the first lab-grown burger was made in 2013, and it cost about $250,000 to produce at the time. <laughs> But today, in 2018, they're able to make it at $10. So that is scaled down. And so t talking to him, I wasn't asking him about the science. I was kind of asking him, like, what are the communication problems you've encountered with, with kind of creating this product? And he was saying, look, we have all the technology we need to solve world hunger. We have all the technology to move away from an animal-based uh, diet. You can have protein supplements very readily available. It's the cultural issue that comes into place. Um, so he said, there's something more to food than the issues of sustainability or nutrients. It is about the role, the role food has within our society and the rituals that are built around it. It is the context and stories around foods that lead us to keep on eating them. Think of the rituals of like a barbecue and how drawn to us how drawn we are to like the smells of umami and grilling meat. So, so if we want to produce new food inventions, we need to figure out how to make them fit within our stories and the cultures we live in. And so with that in mind, while all the components of a fully functioning food system cannot be minimized, I wanted to uncover how visual images of food are used as tools for communication and community building. Specifically, what role do the digital platforms and information communication tools have in this changing relationship we have to our food? 
So in particular, I looked at digitally circulated media artifacts in a Western context that featured food as a primary subject. And like I said, I'll call these food texts frequently. And also, like, why media? Well, I'm gonna, this is the only theory I'm gonna drop, so <laughs> enjoy. Uh, sociologist Irving Goffman contended in his book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, that each person within a social interaction is attempting to guide and control impressions that are formed about themselves. So likewise, interpreting social data about others are key parts of survival within social interactions. It is as important to be able to anticipate the outcome or the end product of an activity as well as the other person's feelings towards themselves. And so while we don't have full data available to us about another person, their intentions and their true feelings, people typically infer these aspects by social interactions using clues such as hints, expressive gen gestures, cues, or status symbols. That is to say, without knowing someone fully, we draw impressions based on interpreting the outward appearances and what they do. So therefore, content created and circulated via social media typically gets interpreted as these clues that we use to understand each other and figure out our relationships to them. So for my methods, I had interviews and visits with chefs, food industry professionals, media makers. I surveyed a lot of people who liked and disliked food social media content. Um, I did a survey with over 100 social media users and 98% of them had encountered food related content. So it's pretty, it's, it's safe bet to call it ubiquitous at this point in our social media landscape. Um, I did a primary source review of lots of different types of food texts. In particular, I looked at archival magazine, documents, Instagram posts, Twitter tweets, blog posts, forums, and lots, lots more. Uh, and I did a survey on existing research on food and media trends. And this food studies is kind of this burgeoning field that exists across so many different disciplines. So I looked at what there was in media studies, but also history, anthropology, computer science even, psychology and sociology. So all these things come together to illustrate the convergences, so how they're similar and divergences, how they're different in the creation and consumption of food texts throughout time. So what did I find out? Well, food is definitely a, a vessel for communication, and this we've known for a really long time. But now with these digital channels, their communication potential has been amplified. And it's the affordances of digital media, in particular the widespread networks it travels through, that helps give them more social importance to the messages people use to communicate with each other. So this gives food a new platform for communication. But also the power dynamic of food text creation has shifted from primarily originating from the expert to now mainly coming from mainstream diners or social media connected foodies. <coughs> So how did we get here?
why this presentation comes after lunch. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what do I mean? Like, how did we get here? What is here? In this particular case, this is the intro, whatever it's called, like the intro scene to the second season of Chef's Table on Netflix. Um, and in this particular case, there is an artistic treatment of the footage documenting the process of creation of the fine dining experience and the creation of the food, the creation of the space, and just the whole story that's being told. And both elements, such as the ingredients on the tables and the people who cook the food and the kitchen cooks, and you saw the, the faces of the chefs very melodramatically um, composed and shown. It's, it's really saying that the food we're eating is not just for utility anymore. There's, there's much more depth to this process and it's being treated with, with a lot of respect. And this is new, but not so new. So the story that I'm, that I'm gonna unfold for you right now is exemplary not exhaustive. So what I mean by that is I'm showing specific moments and pieces of what I think represent a larger trend throughout time. And so let's start in the mid 20th century, right around World War II. So Gourmet Magazine, the magazine of good living, it had the agenda of expanding cultural horizons through culinary explorations since its first printing in 1941. In the mid 20th century, there was the mass importation of European foods and flavors and an increasing ease of transatlantic travel, which positioned food as a dynamic part of social and cultural explorations. And the, the key word there is explorations. In particular, gourmet was pointed to as an indicator of how Americans had dropped their puritanical uh, mentalities around food in the sense that it was just simply a utility in favor of an opportunity to exercise the taste buds with a variety of interesting flavors and to enjoy the experience in the company of family and friends. So this is kind of where gourmet food culture started being built. Um, and, and so there's this reflexive relationship between recipe execution in a domestic space and the sociocultural connections that emerge from dining out and travel. However, these connections have existed within food culture at different lengths at one another. In particular, the rise of food and lifestyle magazines in the mid 20th century paralleled growing consumer interest in exploring how new social and cultural avenues of food could, could be experienced through the comfort of home. And so this is interesting because a lot of times we like to think about food porn as this sort of modern phenomenon, but this is a photo from 1944 <laughs> that you could probably put on Instagram, maybe with a little bit different food. I don't know if you'd want to eat peas on potatoes like that, but, um, <laughs> and now we see a lot of people doing food arrangement, and this is, what I'm trying to say is this isn't new. Just the ways we experience it are So now we're gonna speed up a bit <laughs> and look at food text through time. Now we're in the mid 90s <laughs> to the early aughts. And more recently in the tail end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, digital avenues allowed for these cross-cultural and community connections to flourish with ease and at increasing speeds. While the experience of cooking for oneself in one's home was once private, digital media expanded the public purview of home cooking in an unlikely and profound way. 
cooking at home became not only a cultural experience, but also a social experience. And uh, just to give you some, some dates to keep in mind, Food Network was launched in 1993. It went more mainstream in 1997, but that's where we're looking at kind of it coming on TV in a very widespread network way. Um, and the first recipe website was Epicurious, and it came out in 1995 from Condé Nast. And what's super interesting about Epicurious is it was one of the first few digital publications that was digital first. Uh, they, it wasn't a magazine that was trying to figure out how to be digital, it's totally started digital. Um, and it's, it's a pretty cool story. So it came, the idea came from Rochelle Udell, who was an editor at Condé Nast. And she had an experience on an AOL chat where it was the night before Thanksgiving and people were helping each other figure out how to cook their turkeys. And she was like, this is amazing that I can have all these people helping me in my kitchen being digitally connected. Um, so they ended up taking all the recipes from Condé Nast and print and licensing them. And they had to get all thousands and thousands of recipes digitized to put it on the web. And this was before OCR or anything like that. So they actually sent it to a digital monk firm that these monks in Virginia would transcribe <laughs> all the recipes. <laughs> and apparently this was like a super common practice in the beginning of the internet is these digital monks like built the internet and that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's a cool like hidden labor thing. Um, thinking back to some of the other presentations. They were getting paid though. Um, and so by 1998, Epicurious had a recipe database of 7,600 recipes. And by 2005, they had 20,000 recipes. And they, spent, they were one of the first groups to be on YouTube. So that was pretty cool. I, if you guys have seen those videos of the hands making food from BuzzFeed Tasty, well, Epicurious did that way before, like in the early 2000s on YouTube. Um, and they had crossovers with Williams-Sonoma to advertise on their site. They had a Discovery Channel series based on their show. And this was, like I said, all based on, uh, on this online site. And this is the site map of the first thing and some of the, some of the headlines from the first home pages. So it did kind of replicate what a newspaper would look like at first, but they could do really interactive things like make maps of growing seasons. And that was really, they think they may have been the first person, but I don't know. <laughs> um, and so in my story also, I wanted to bring in the voices of some, some people that I had the pleasure of speaking with that I feel like really represent what was happening at the time, but also more importantly, they had a stake in the game. So these were people involved in these transitioning times. So this is Louisa Weiss. Um, she created her blog in 2005. It's called The Wednesday Chef. And she was super concerned when she started making her, her uh, blog that she was late to the game because there were already 20 other food blogs on the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but she still, now obviously she's considered to be one of the first food bloggers. Um, and so I asked her like, how has blogging, food blogging changed over the past 12 years? And she said, when I started, there were some unspoken rules I think still apply. Early on, people would come to blogs to be a part of the community, leave thoughtful comments, make friends, and that's how you would build re readership. Link back, don't steal recipes without attribution. Those rules still apply, but because people now read on their phones, people don't comment as much. 
I think that's why Instagram has an enormous success because you can like a post and you can also comment, but you'll notice there's always more likes than comments. Because blogs don't give you that option, you'll notice that my posts from five years ago got far more comments than they do now, even though my readership hasn't dropped. So back in the early days of internet blogs, the blogs acted more of a space for unique communities to develop and people, in terms of food blog, typically women, to share their stories. Um, people felt empowered to share the, the tales of their successes and failures, how recipes came to them, and anecdotes that they didn't necessarily get a space to tell and to explain in other ways. For example, I just had a kid and the, the child won't eat any of the food I'm cooking and it's really picky, how do I, how do I cook something? Um, and this is kind of similar maybe to, to write the writing questions in, early food, in women's magazines, but this was a lot more dynamic and had a lot more people able to participate. Um, and so this also, this kind of sense of things were changing with online discourse happened in the restaurant industry. So these are some images from the 1999 to 2000s issues of Food Arts Magazine, which is the first uh, Western in food industry magazine to come out and it started in 1989. Um, and just like everybody everywhere was worried about the Y2K bug and what does this mean for the future and the internet, so was the restaurant industry. So here are just some, some drawings I really loved from some issues. Like I love the chef talking on his cell phone as like this hotline to technology frontiers. Like how are chefs gonna deal with this? Um, people were worried that now they were the people were gonna read, oh I have this button. The people were gonna just wanna watch stuff on the computer and not go to restaurants. There was a big problem, well not problem, but problem for the people that owned restaurants because a lot of waiters started these forums where they would communicate about poor working conditions, um, bad, like bad things that were, were happening within the industry and so rather than it just taking place in like a back alley like this is a problem, now this could be publicized online. Um, and then there was also this issue of like, oh crap, now we need to market ourselves online, how do we make a restaurant digital? That's seems like an oxymoron to a lot of people. Um, and then I just want, I have one more, oh no, wait, I have one more image from these magazines I wanted to share because it was so goofy. Oh yeah, so I love this one, the people eating on a floppy disk with um, the long printout <laughs> of reservations and things going and you know the waiters having to move fast. So there was a lot of discussions of like, how is this gonna change the dynamics of us eating in restaurants? So now we're at the late 2000s, early 2010s. And this was really a turning point for food techs and their infrastructure. So coincidentally, there was the economic downturn, the recession in 2008, that there was a little bit of the fire, but it sort of, it wasn't the only thing that was happening that was crippling the food media industry, at least as people had known it in print for a long time. Um, in 2010 was the first time that uh, point and shoot camera sales declined as smartphones overtook them. So that was kind of like a watershed moment. And um, the internet and social media had become a lot more active. So it's not just the economic troubles that were hitting restaurants, but also, um, but also just that people were going to other media. And so Ruth Reichel was the final editor of Gourmet Magazine before it folded in 2009. 
And she had something really positive to say, actually, in, in the wake of her magazine being shut down, like how the internet's good for food culture. And she said, the formula is simple. When you cook for people, they feel cared for. That hasn't changed. What's different is that 40 years ago, my interest in food felt like a very solitary passion. Today, everybody's interested in cooking. And cooks connect in ways we didn't dream of being of before computers in our life. Now, thanks to Twitter, I have friends I've never met all around the world. These friendships may be virtual, but to me, they are real. I am no longer alone when I cook in my kitchen. But then on the other side, <laughs> we have Christopher Kimball, who is sort of infamous in the food industry for many reasons, but he's behind Cook's Illustrated in America's Test Kitchen. And he wrote an obituary to Gourmet Magazine when it shuttered in the New York Times. And he said, the shuttering of Gourmet reminds us that in a click-or-die advertising marketplace, one ruled by a million instant pundits, where anonymous Twitter comment might be seen to pack more resonance and useful content than an article that reflects a lifetime of experience. Experts are not created from the top down, but from the bottom up. They can no longer be coronated. Their voices have been deemed essential to the lives of their customers. That leaves, I think, little room for thoughtful, considerate editorial content. Um, so then looking kind of a little bit more about how restaurants dealt with this consumers creating more food context. I spoke with the head of front of house at Mugaritz, which is a two Michelin star restaurant in Basque Country in the top 10 world's best restaurants. And he's been there for over 10 years um, since the inception of this restaurant. And so it was really interesting to hear him describe how in 2005 they had one person who would look over the social media content um, for the whole restaurant. And if they saw that somebody was tweeting from the table, everybody in the front of house would rush down, make sure that person had you know, good lighting, had the right information, um, you know, make sure that if they were going to post it online, it was going to be good and accurate. Um, they did this for a few more years, but then, you know, like once it became commonplace, and he actually marked 2010, which, like I said, was that year that, that the camera phones surpassed point-and-shoot cameras as the kind of the year when it became normalized. And so after that, they kind of just ignored everybody taking photos, and he says that now everyone takes photos. It does not matter age, ethnicity, anything. It's everyone. Um, and when they set a table, they have to figure out where on the table people are going to be able to put their phones down, because they will. And like I said, this is a two Michelin star restaurant, and these are conversations that the top of the top is having. Um, so now kind of looking at the, the, <laughs> the consumer side of the content creators. So these are two different restaurants. So on this side, we have this place called Broken Coconuts. And on this side, it's Chacha Macha. And they're like very trendy places in Manhattan. And they look almost identical because right now, when people are designing restaurants, um, one thing that a lot of them are considering, and there's a lot of articles within the industry out about this, is like, how do you make your restaurant Instagrammable? Like, what is your visual hook? And you can see through this that like neon pink neon signs and green work really well. The branding on food uh, is really important. Um, so I know you're also probably wondering, like, are we living in a simulation if all this kind of looks the same? Um, <laughs> it doesn't really matter, <laughs> but it is kind of weird. And we're kind of also now that we have this proliferation of uh, diner created content, like who controls the narrative around food now? 
That is, the type of food-related media draws out perf the perf <laughs> drowns out professionally created content. So instead of seeing what the chef wants you to see, you're seeing what the person who's eating is trying to tell the story with the chef's food. And then, so 2016, Bon Appetit magazine did a culture issue that I was super excited for and then really disappointed in. Um, so in this, in, this, uh, in this magazine, they pretty much pointed out here are all these trends that are happening like on social media, like how to blow up your news feed, how did we get all food obsessed, but they never really talked about like why is this happening, which is what I view as kind of my research. Um, but also more, more interestingly about this, there's a weird trend of explicit delays of food text creation process that keeps on popping up all over Instagram and even on the cover of this food magazine. So users keep on posting photos of someone taking photos of food. Uh, it is an intrinsically meta practice if you think about it. Um, in particular, it demonstrates the awareness of the production component of everyday user-generated food text. But also it embraces the lens of mediation the camera phone has introduced into the dynamic of the meal experience. Um, And then I also spoke with David Ma, who's a major food artist, creative director, and influencer. And he said, like, food media today is pretty much all the same. Like, there are five trends that you can pretty much tag to every single food image you see on Instagram. There's the shooting food from the overhead perspective. There's lifting ramen or noodles high into the air for the photo. There's, like, the donut tear in half to show the insides. Um, there's the sped up videos of, you know, bird's eye view down of the food being made, and then cheese bowls are super notorious as well. <laughs> um, but then, so, if, if there's kind of this homogenous, overwhelming world happening of food text creation, like, what do chefs do now? Uh, so this is <laughs> Rene Rizepi from Noma, uh, and yeah, it's probably my favorite Instagram of all the chefs. <laughs> <laughs> So he posts a lot of content of him foraging through the Nordic fields, looking for restaurant ingredients, going all over the world, crustaceans, food that, showing videos of meals that they tried to create that didn't go well. Um, so he's kind of trying to reclaim this narrative of this is my food that I'm creating, it's not just your Instagram picture. And it's really giving uh, visibility to also the chef process that happens. Um, <coughs> And this is, it's important to note that like the dynamics of a successful chef in fine dining is cultural and symbolic capital versus economic, like straight up economic cash money. Um, so that's kind of where fine dining media production is different than uh, middle, middle, middle chains. And then uh, one more, one more people I want to, <laughs> one more group of people I want to bring up. So. This is Helois and Jordi Roca of El Cellar de Can Roca. So this is, um, it's been like top three restaurants in the world and he's considered the best pastry chef in the world. And so when, when asked about social media and food, they said what's different now is everybody will come to your restaurant and know exactly what their food will look like. So you have to think of other ways to innovate that dining experience in ways that a photo cannot capture. But on the flip side, since everybody's seeing the images coming from your restaurant, you have more space to tell a narrative outside of your restaurant. So, so he was talking about how 
he created a dish that was based off of smelling his niece's head when she was just born, the sweetness, and it was kind of milky, and he created a dish after this. Typically, the chef would not be able to tell this story. He would just present the dish, and he would know that story, but now through Instagram, he can show photos of the process and be able to tell that story to a much larger audience. Um, and also, the, he said that the, the chef community has been able to become much bigger and global because he's able to connect and share his working process with other chefs too. So kind of putting it all together, um, I wanted to do like a quick game. I know I only have one minute. <laughs> but like a game of contrast to show like how the form and functions have shifted. Um, so Zagat versus Yelp. Both of these are, so Zagat, how many people are familiar with Zagat? Yeah, do you know that it started with a bunch of people mailing out food surveys and then a married couple aggregating them and then writing the reports? And so it's actually kind of not that different to Yelp except that Yelp is a lot more personal and this is my experience at a specific restaurant. So it goes from the, to group knowledge um, coming together to group knowledge coming together but then fragmentizing again. Um, and I'm gonna have to skip through my game, unfortunately, I think, to go to. So in conclusion, you can ask more about that in the questions. Um, so in conclusion, while the underlying purpose of and construction of food, yeah. So while the underlying purpose of the construction and consumption of food text remains the same, the authority of food culture and its resulting narrative control has shifted due to the convergence of food text and digital media affordances. So that means that listening to mainstream culture and becoming embedded in that over trying to make changes from the top down is the way to go in terms of thinking about how you, you get into this narrative. So right now, award-granting bodies like Michelin Guide or World's Best 50 Restaurants do have a lot of sway over what, finding what fine dining institutions are accepted as such. However, the Netflix effect of being profiled on chef's table and or the popularity of a restaurant on Instagram and tags and check-ins is also a very real legitimizing force that is directly and monetarily impacting the industry. So in the end, going back to my original problem, like if we want to produce new food interventions, we need to figure out how to make them fit within the stories and cultures we live in. And right now we're seeing very individualized narratives emerging about people showing who they are through their choices in food um, and what they display. Um, and so I think, I'm gonna, I have some things on Soylent, but I'm gonna skip it. You can ask me about Soylent. <laughs> um, so just kind of quickly, uh. <laughs> okay, well, instead of asking what does the future of food look like, I think we should be asking what does the future of food culture look like, thank you. Heather, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what the role of class and race might play in the wider context of your research. I was really struck watching Chef's Table that this was for an extremely highbrow audience of people who really have no concerns about access to food or about hunger issues and so on. It struck me 
as a very kind of alienating experience and very much about plating and design and little tiny, tiny pieces of food for very large amounts of money. And that, was, that thought was brought home to me at, towards the end when you talked about the uh, description of a food smelling like a newborn baby's yeah. head, which you know, to some people would sound very romantic and wonderful, to other people would just sound like cannibalism or <laughs> the worst possible description for food that has nothing to do with the reality of people yeah. wanting to interact with food. And you know, on the, the flip side from the gourmet culture, if you, you know, like on Yelp, is people actually talking about like, I wouldn't pay $20 for this cheeseburger, yeah. this is worth $5. And you know, so that element is obviously out there, but it feels like separated from uh, you know, gourmet food culture. Yeah, so I think you, you hit on a lot of points there, some of them being like uh, worries about access to food. Um, another, in terms of also being part of food culture, um, you were hitting on like just focusing on design and not worrying about the implications maybe for that. And um, then the last one, you, uh, can you repeat it please? Well, I think I was going to this sort of uh, practical reality of a food part of food mm -hmm. culture, which is people give out reviews to tell you if it's worth your money to go yeah. to some place to eat out versus the gourmet food culture that is about uh, you know, visual, what some people call food pornography, yeah. visual presentation, and the image as a substitute for actually eating. Yeah, so I have a few things to say on that. Um, one, it's what's been really interesting is now that these fine dining chefs have been able to get a lot more publicity through things like Instagram, a lot of them have started doing food accessibility and food security work through having this greater voice. Um, so for example, Massimo Baratto, Baratti, I always call him like Baratto, like the cheese. Um, but <laughs> he uh, right now is considered the best chef in the world and in Paris he just opened a homeless, um, a homeless restaurant. So only homeless people are allowed to eat there and he creates really fantastic food for them. We, I've also started seeing this trend where Michelin star chefs will create um, more accessible price point versions of their meal. So for example, Jordi Roca, the pastry chef, he has uh, an ice cream place in downtown Barcelona where you can get an ice cream for two euros that's, that's inspired by a dessert that you can get at El Salar de Can Roca. So they're kind of trying to think about like, how do I take my vision and make it more accessible? I think it also has to do with like building a greater cultural capital for them. Um, it's economically motivated, but also, like you have uh, Dan Barber, who does a lot of food security issues. Um, there's a bunch of chefs in San Francisco that are really working to try to bring fresh food and working with local chefs in underserved areas to, to get more food. Like there, there are efforts, um, and they are the chefs are trying to give it that kind of still glamorized food culture narrative so that people pay attention and help, but they're not always successful. Um, they are an outsiders kind of coming in for the most part, but also a lot of chefs are are not coming from much. It's a very anti-elitist culture, if anything. I know that it comes off as very elite, but these are a lot of people that failed out of high school, didn't go to college, um, nothing else worked, so they started working in kitchens. So you can't discount like their experiences and think that this, this is only like hoity-toity. The people in the kitchens typically aren't. I don't know if that answers all of your questions, but I could talk for another few hours on that. <laughs> yeah, I saw Kelly raise her hand first. <laughs> um, really good talk. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the sort of like social media food practices and also 
um, like mainstream, like the like Food Network kind of television shows like MasterChef, because I know that sort of some of these chefs who are of a sort of yeah. social media presence also have a presence on television. Mm -hmm. um, I honestly don't know too much about Food Network because, except for what I watched from it, um, that seems to be very formulaic in terms of they know that these things get high ratings, so they just keep on rebranding them as like, now it's cupcake wars, and now it's kids cooking, and things like that. But um, though the Food Network chefs typically do not have the same sort of process-oriented Instagram presence the way fine dining chefs do. Sasha. Yeah, so I think, uh, especially through the chef's Instagram, since they're able to show where the ingredients come from, those farmers are now becoming part of this narrative that maybe if you went to a frou-frou restaurant and they put a plate down, you wouldn't know where that came from. Maybe they would tell you it came from a farm. But now you could look on the chef's Instagram and actually see like the pigs coming out with the chef and the chef being like, you're the one I'm going to take. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but but... That's something that is very common. I think it's kind of twofold. One, it's to justify the high prices. These chefs are not making a killing. The fact of the matter is a lot of them are using very high quality ingredients and supporting local farmers, and that does not come cheap, especially in a, such an industrialized food system that we live in now. So I think part of their motives of showing this behind the scenes, these are the ingredients, this is the woman that made this hand by cheese, this cheese by hand, for three months that now you're going to eat, it's like, this is why your, your meal is going to cost $200. Um, but also, I think it is helping, and you don't just see fine dining chefs posting, but I, like in, in Boston, a lot of the people in kitchens are posting photos of them creating food, and I think having more visibility of that behind the house process is helping people um, within society become 
well, I think they should have already been okay with raising wages for kitchen workers, but maybe now when there's the 3% kitchen staff, um, you know, price at the end of your meal, it's like, oh, well, I see them post on Instagram, like they're doing work, this is something they care about. It's kind of giving visibility to the labor as well. Marielle. Be careful with your, your research fills my heart and my mind, and I really want to hear your reading of Soylent as a group. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll end on that. Okay. One, yeah. <laughs> Great. So, kind of going to this tech as a solution for everything thing. Uh, so, I want to first of all say Soylent is just the male version of SlimFast, and it came to the market decades later. Uh, so I'm not too impressed on that front. <laughs> but also when it was, let me find my notes on it, sorry. <laughs> but also when it, when it got first introduced to the market, it was sold on the issues of productivity, convenience, health, sustainability. But then if you were reading the reviews of people on like Vice that were saying, I ate only Soylent for 30 days and this is how I felt, it ended up, people had social isolation because food is such a huge part of community creation and our identity and boredom and like identity crises and it's just like a whole bunch of unintended consequences. So pretty, pretty much they were trying to isolate themselves from food culture in a way. And if now if you look at the, the way that Soylent's marketing and product changes are going, uh, now there's a, a chai version of Soylent. So like if we're starting to flavor all of it, it's not just this like utilitarian thing anymore. And spices are the most politically wrought <laughs> uh, area ever. And now it's like, oh, look, it's like an ice cream, but it's soylent. Um, so I think they're kind of catching on to what I'm saying is that you can't just have these technological interventions and expect them to catch on. Um, I also agree, Sasha, with your earlier point that it's not just technological innovation that needs to happen for it. It's a lot of food waste. And there are so many things that could be done much, much better, but um, it's just a matter of changing the narrative and getting people to buy into it and really being committed to making these changes. And with that. Thank you.